Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Amen. All right, there's a question up here. Let's take a few moments to think about this. What um, blind people, it sounds like a really strange question, but what blind people can you think of uh, who were healed in the Bible? Blind Bartimaeus, all right? Anybody else? Yeah, Dean? The spit in the mud, all right, John 9. That's where we're going to be tonight, by the way, John 9. So encounters with Jesus. Anybody else? Last week's? Yeah, <laughs> it sounds weird to hear that. <laughs> well, he was dead. That's uh, even worse. <laughs> he was blind too. John, you always bring humor to the situation. Thanks for doing that. The blind man who didn't get the mud in the eye? Okay. I can't remember. There's a couple situations where people went on home. And so, all right. Well, that is true. Yep. And and got healed. That's true. That's good. You're getting ahead of me, John. That's my conclusion. <laughs> Except the Pharisees. All right. Can you think of anybody else? Paul? Oh, that's good. Paul? What about uh, anybody else in the the New Testament beyond the Gospels? Okay, how about the Old Testament? Yeah, go ahead. Yep. Yep, there was a prophet. Elemis, was it Elemis, the sorcerer? Okay. All right. Anybody else? How about in the Old Testament? Do you know of anybody who was blind in the Old Testament, first of all? Samson? Well, that's the that's a good obvious one, isn't it? Samson. Anybody else? Isaac? As, as the years went by, he wasn't healed of it, right? Okay. Jacob? All right. What about, it uh, seems like there was somebody else that, that was like that. Can you think of anybody in the Old Testament who was healed of blindness? And that's, that's my next question. Let's see if this works here. Any in the Old Testament? No? I'm going to come back to that uh, a little bit later, if that's all right. All right, let's go to John chapter 9. And we're talking about encounters with Jesus in the Gospels. Hold on just a second. My battery's running low, apparently. Okay. 
Okay, John chapter 9, and if this works good, and if it doesn't, fine. All right, um, let's read in verse 1 and following. As uh, he went, who's the he there? Jesus. As Jesus went uh, along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground and he made some mud with the saliva and he put it in the man's eyes. Go, he said to him, and wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and he washed and he came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Now, I'd like you just to notice the responses here. Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I'm the man. And how... uh, How then were your eyes open, they asked. And he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, and he put it in my eyes, and he told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. And uh, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind, and now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. And we want to say, "Uh uh-oh, that's going to be trouble, right? Verse 15, therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. And he said, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was, uh, it was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still didn't believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered. We know he was born blind, but how... He can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. And we hear a little bit behind the scenes here. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. This was why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind Give glory to God by revealing or by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And they asked him, what, uh, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I've already told you. And you didn't listen. Why do you want uh, to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples now? And they hurled insults at him and said, 
you are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, "How? Uh, how? Uh, now that is remarkable. Uh, you don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, You have now seen him. Remember, the last encounter, he didn't see Jesus. He only heard him. In fact, he is the one who is speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? Jesus Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. All right, let's uh, just divide this into three portions tonight, three portions of Scripture. And uh, we're going to see this in the first part is the physical condition, Jesus and uh, the disciples, Jesus and the blind man. And then the second, we hear the testimony. And you've heard a little bit about that. They, they call the man, they uh, call his parents to give testimony, and then they call the man back to give a little bit more testimony. And then we see the, the spiritual condition. So there's kind of a symmetry here. Uh, the first is Jesus dealing with the physical condition, which is what? Blindness. And the last is he's dealing with the spiritual condition, which is what? Blindness. And so all of this is pointing to a deeper fact that Jesus is showing that there are some who refuse to believe that he's the Messiah. And so because of that, because of that choice, they are choosing to willfully be blind. So this man would have been near the temple, and I wish I had my map up here, uh, but you would have seen that he would have been near the temple begging. Why do you think it would have been a good idea for him to beg uh, alms near the temple? People would have had money on them. That's a good one, Dean. I didn't think of that. That's true. They're going to church. They're going to drop something into the offering. What else happens when you kind of get close to church sometimes? You get holier, or you want to be holier. You're recognizing your need to be holy and to do your spiritual obligations. And one of the spiritual obligations is to take care of the poor and those that can't take care of themselves. Okay? And so he's probably near the temple precinct, and uh, Jesus comes across this man, and they must have known the story. Maybe he was well-known for sitting there. Uh, Jesus didn't touch everybody or heal everybody that was in the temple precinct because we find the man, remember in Acts chapter 3, who was obviously there when Jesus walked past, but he wasn't healed, and the disciples uh, reached out to him, literally, quite literally, and uh, saw him healed. 
But uh, in this particular situation, they know about it. And so the disciples ask a question. And I want you to notice that they, they paint it in two options. And this often happens with Jesus, is they want to, they've already come up in their minds, people have come up in their minds, not just the disciples, but religious leaders, Pharisees, that it's, it's either A or B, okay? A or B. And uh, what Jesus often does, almost every time, is he shows that the limited uh, capability of their logic by showing that many times there's an option they hadn't thought of. There's a third option. Okay, so they've come to the conclusion here uh, that this man has sinned or his parents have sinned. Now, he was born blind from birth. How do we account for the idea that this man could have sinned? Anybody know or have an idea on that? Okay, maybe they assumed that that this man uh, was inheriting his parents' sin. Okay, well, what about him? Who's? Why would you ask the question? Who sinned? Did this man sin that he was born blind? How can you sin before you're born? What's that? No, I don't. I don't know that it does either. Maybe there's some there's some um, extra biblical rabbinical sources that suggest that there's beliefs out there that um, maybe there is a way that somebody could have sinned prior to their birth, having a sinful disposition. But I don't think that's it either. Uh, another option is that maybe God, in His foreknowledge, knew that this man was going to be sinful. So, in ahead of time, He he set down a punishment because he knew of the actions. Like, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Minority Report where they can predict when you're going to commit a crime. And so God predicting that this man is going to, uh, knowing that this man is going to sin, sets down upon him a punishment. But they've got two options. What do they think they are? What do they, what do they think has happened? The only two options they give to Jesus. Who sinned? A. This man, B, his parents. And what does Jesus do? He, circum, he circumvents all of that. He says it was neither this man nor his parents, but this is done for the glory of God. Um, you know, with the two choices, we don't know whether uh, Jesus' view is that this man was inheriting sin or if he... Uh, was sinful prior to that, or if uh, because of what had happened in John chapter 5, if they're understanding that that the only reason that there's difficulty in life is because of sin. Uh, but Jesus uh, takes a different view on that, shows a different view on that. And we can gather from the Bible that sometimes uh, the sickness is the direct result of sin. Okay, so think of Miriam. Remember what Miriam's complaint was? Moses had married a Cushite wife. And if you think about this, what's that? And that's, a, that's another circumstance. But uh, in that particular case, I think there's irony because what uh, Miriam is complaining about is that his wife is from Cush, right? Remember that? And if you're from Cush, your skin is dark, okay? 
So what does God do to punish her? Strikes her with leprosy on the face. And what is what color is leprosy? Very white. So this is an interesting place of, I think, God's humor. <laughs> is it, you don't like black? Let me show you some white. And uh, he strikes her with uh, leprosy because she complained against Moses. Now, the whole thing about his wife was a smokescreen. She was really jealous of his authority. And so God uh, struck her with sickness. You can see that in other places in Scripture. But then you can also see times where where there's uh, sickness that is not the direct result of a single sin. Now, let me back up and just say that sickness in the world is the result of sin, either directly or indirectly, mostly indirectly. Are you with me on that? Okay. Because we're in a fallen world, we have, sin, we have sickness. If we weren't in a fallen world, we could assume that it would probably be completely healthy. No COVID. Right? <laughs> Maybe no mosquitoes. I don't know where they fit into the plan, but somehow they fit in there. Uh, but whatever it is, uh, we know that it's the indirect result of sin. And sometimes it's the direct result of sin, but not always the direct result of sin. We can see that in Job's case, that he's not sick because of a sin. Elisha, it tells us when he was suffering from the disease with which he would die, that that's when he stood with the king and they shot the arrows. Do you remember that? So there was some kind of a, if I remember right, a foot disease or something like that. And then we have the James passage. um, If any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over them, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise them up. And if they've committed sins, they will be forgiven. If they've committed sins. So it says maybe there's a relationship between sickness and sin in terms of a direct result. But not necessarily. I'd like to point out that this passage has a lot to do with deciding. There's a lot to do with deciding in this passage. There are, th- there are a lot of things that are kind of on trial here. Uh, what caused the condition of the blind man, whether this is the blind man or not that's been healed, we have to decide on that. Is Jesus from God or is he not? And uh, are, the, are the Pharisees spiritually blind or not? There's lots of decisions that are being made in this passage. And, and the first one is the, the reason for this man's sickness, his blindness. Um, verse 3, look at what it says there. This is Jesus' response. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, don't take that absolutely. Do you understand what that means? Like, this isn't saying these people are also sin-free. Besides Jesus, you can count on three more. No. This is saying that this sin is not, this is not the cause of this illness. Do you get that? It's not saying they're sin-free. It's saying that neither this man nor his parents sinned in order that this sickness should come upon him. Uh, But this is for the glory of God. This is for the glory of God. Notice what it says, this has happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. Somehow this situation was, uh, was placed so that the works of God could be on display. And one of the primary things that's going to be seen is that Jesus is the light of the world. That's the point of this. 
is that he opens the eyes of the blind. He is the light of the world. What better way to demonstrate that? And John often does this. He demonstrates the spiritual through something physical. Remember when uh, in John chapter 6, we didn't deal with this passage, but in John chapter 6, I think it's there that he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part with me. And everybody's been out of shape, and a lot of people stop following him because they think that he's, he's speaking literally, but he's speaking figuratively there, isn't he? He often leads with the physical example, but there's a spiritual meaning in it. And, uh, of course, that comes to those who are patient enough and understanding enough and desirous enough for the truth that they'll stick around to hear it. And so here he's saying that the, although this man was blind, it's, it's, it's happened for the works of God to be on display. And that really gives us food for thought about what lives are for. I don't know if you thought of this, but this man was born blind, that the works of God would be on display. I don't know how old he is. We're not told how old he is, but he's, he's of adult age. We know that for sure. How do we know that? His parents said he's old enough to speak for himself. His parents are still alive, so maybe he's in young adulthood. But that means all of his childhood and adolescence he spent in blindness. Have you thought of that? And that, depending on how we view this, either God allowed it or God caused this for a moment to come in which he could be glorified. I, I, I don't know if you've thought about this and... You know, uh, the, this kind of troubles simplistic answers, and it leaves us with some questions. If it's for the glory of God, did God cause him to be born blind? Or, and maybe we like this better, did God give permission to the enemy to let him be born blind so that God's reputation wouldn't be damaged by being the direct cause? Or is this really not to be looked at as a negative thing, but as a gift. I think when we have temporary, short-term, materialistic views of the world, then when we're affected physically, we always see that as an ultimate evil. But what if God allowed some kind of evil to come, or even if this wasn't an evil, but a gift to him? I'd like you to think about this, at least, and and certainly come to your own determination, but... This could be a good gift of God, which only appears on the surface to be something bad. But simplistic answers, by being simplistic, fail to see the complex ways that God works. And God accomplishes the good, uh, in, even in what is bad and breaks his heart. Even Lazarus' sickness was in the same category in John eleven four. Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Now, if you know, literally, he did die, right? But what does it mean? It's not going to end in death. It's not going to stay there. This sickness will not end in death. But he goes on to say, no, it's for the glory of God, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Uh so there are some people who've tried to work around this, and one way that can be worked around this, I don't, I don't know if you knew this or not, but when we, our original, or our oldest manuscripts of the New Testament were written in all capital letters, with no spaces between the words. 
That would be a nightmare to read. And then, in addition to that, there's no punctuation. So it's all cap letters. Can you imagine? Just picture that in English. All cap letters, words running together, no punctuation. So they have to guess at where to punctuate these sentences. And one way to deal with this troublesome thing that's happening here is to punctuate it like this. Neither this man sinned nor his parents, but so that the works of God may be revealed in him, it's necessary for us to work the works of him who sent me. So in other words, the glory of God isn't the the illness, but it's the fact that Jesus is going to work the works. That's one way it could be said. Or it could show that it was necessary for this man to be born this way so that the works of God could be seen. I tend to prefer that. You can make your choice. But it seems to me that this is a moment, uh, and it is a moment, that's going to go down in history, and it's very significant. Could this show result rather than purpose? I think this man's entire life was affected for the glory of God. And this is where I think we would do good to think about this. What if God allowed him to spend all those years in darkness so that at one moment he could turn the lights on for him? And not only for him, but for the whole world. Is that a waste? See, there's consolation in a few things here. First, he's recorded in Scripture, and his story is known wherever the Bible's translated. This man. I mean, I don't, we want to leave a legacy, don't we? Can you imagine a legacy like this? Like, you're going down in the Bible. Everywhere it's translated, and it's been translated in almost every language. This story is told about this guy. I mean, that sounds like a great consolation. Yeah, he spent a few years in darkness. But his story is told everywhere, and I'm getting ahead of myself. But the second consolation is he received from Jesus, not, not, and, and I don't want to minimize this because all miracles are really from Jesus, but Jesus in the flesh, he received from Jesus a personal miracle that reversed his life. That's a big deal. I mean, I love, I want to, any miracle God's got, but can you imagine if you're there and Jesus touched you? Not only did he touch you, He put spit in your eyes? That's a big deal. And then, I think the greatest consolation of all, and this is true, Paul says, of all of us, these present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory which will be revealed in us. And that's this, that he believed in Jesus as a result of this miracle, and he has eternal life without blindness. What a few weary years compared to that. Try to look at it as if this life is not all that we have, if this life is only a precursor to real life. You know what I mean? And, and this is real life, but there's a life that's coming that's just as real as this one and maybe more. Like we're living in a world of illusions. The veil is going to be pulled back, and we're going to see life as it is. And it's going to be tangible. We, t- we tend to think of the the next life as being some kind of nebulous thing where it's intangible, but what we're going to have is a new heavens and new earth, and we're going to have transformed bodies, and it's going to feel more real than this. Illusions will be pulled away, and we'll see things as they really are, and that, in just a brief moment of eternity, is going to far surpass all the time that we spent here. I mean, if you're older, you realize that life has flown by, right? Doesn't it feel like that? 
life has kind of flown by, and uh, we realize how brief it is in Scripture. Yes, thanks for pointing that out. But I, but I think the the point here is that this this life is just a moment. We're here for a moment, like a vapor, and then it passes away. So um, we want to try to re- remember that from that point of view. Verses 4 and 5, Jesus says something really interesting here. We're going at a snail's pace, but I think it's better to get it here. Jesus says, uh, this is that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Hasn't healed the blind man yet, but he makes this statement. It appears to his disciples, not to the man himself, but to his disciples. Because he says, we. Notice, as long as it's day, we. That's a plural, first person plural, isn't it? Me, Jesus, he's saying, and you guys, we've got to do the works of him who sent me. And this reminds us that Jesus' works are the works of the Father in heaven. He's not just doing his own thing. He's doing the works of God, God the Father. And uh, it reminds us that the works of Jesus were timely too, and they needed to be done while he was in the world. The day is when, uh, I think the best way to understand this, and this is the way a lot of Bible scholars will tell you that uh, probably what Jesus meant by this, is the day is when Jesus is on earth, the night is during the time of the cross, and then beyond the cross is the new day. So this doesn't mean we only can work until Jesus comes or Jesus dies on the cross and then we can't work anymore. But during that time, during that time of difficulty, it was going to be hard for them. And there was a a timeliness about this, that Jesus needed to leave testimony to who he was on earth. So he has to work while it's day because the night is coming. And then he says, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And he needs to point that out to people. So this healing miracle and the other miracles that he's accomplishing or testifying to who he is. Jesus says the light of the world, he brings light of salvation and illumination of who God is. He gives us the knowledge of God. And uh, he turns the light on on a spiritual level so that we can really see. As I said, uh, John loves to use symbols that we're used to to illustrate spiritual truths. And so he uses this healing of the blind man to illustrate that he's the one who turns the lights on for us. Verses 6 and 7, let's read those. After saying this to his disciples, he, he spit on the ground and he made some mud with the saliva and he put it on the man's eyes. He spit on the ground and he, he made some mud from the man's saliva and then uh, he put it in the man's eyes. So uh, this man uh, could, uh, could see after he went and watched. The significance of the, the spit, what was, people, what, was, what was Jesus doing with the spit and the mud? Any thoughts on that? I have an idea, but I don't, I don't know for sure. Water source? But why does it have to be mud at all? Can he speak to the eyes? He wanted the man to use his faith and go wash the 
mud out? Okay. We're, talk, we're just talking now. I don't have a right answer on this. On the Sabbath. Okay. Provoking them. That's good. I didn't thought of that. Provoking them to to make a choice. Okay. Any other thoughts? Okay. And that's good. I don't know if you heard that, but Jesus healed in a variety of ways, didn't he? He didn't always spit in people's eyes or he didn't always touch them. Sometimes he said a word. Sometimes he called for, sometimes he placed a hand on them, sometimes he spit on the ground. One time he spit on his thumb and touched a man's tongue and put his wet fingers in his ears. And the guy came to life, didn't he? He heard and he spoke for the first time. So maybe no methodology. There's a couple um, things that I had in mind. Let's just mention these. I think uh, one possibility here um, is that... In uh, Genesis 2, 7, it tells us that the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. And uh, one suggestion is that what Jesus was doing was a creative miracle, that the man actually had no eyeballs. And so he put some spit on the ground and made some eyeballs and put them in there and brought them to life. Isn't that odd? Man, and Jesus could do that. He could, a creative miracle like that where the man didn't have the eyes to see, but now he does. I don't, I don't, what's that? That's true. Yeah, I don't think it would have bothered the man too much if it hurt a little bit, and then he got to see afterwards, but... Yeah, it could be that. We're just speculating at this point. It's good to ask these questions. It's yeah, and that's what I was thinking, John. There's, a, there's, you would have thought there would have been more made of that later on, but it's it's an option that some have suggested. I think the other possibility here is he anointed his eyes. Remember. One of the issues later on that comes up is Jesus as the Messiah, right? What does Messiah mean? Anybody know? Mm-mm. No, no. Anointed one, anointed. Messiah means anointed one, and in fact, uh, Christ is the Greek Greek version of Messiah. So if you hear Christ. Um, or Messiah, like sometimes it'll be Jesus uh, Christ, our Lord. Jesus, the Anointed One, our Lord, is what that means. So uh, it's it's very possible that that's what uh, that entails. And I think there's a good possibility here that as Messiah, he was anointing this man's eyes. And you find in literature right around that time, Josephus and some others that uh, spit was seen in two ways. One is it was seen as unclean, and then others thought that 
if a person uh, were holy, there would actually be virtue in that. And so this could be an explanation for that, is that Jesus uh, was demonstrating, in a way, his holiness and his anointing by using that spittle in order to create mud and put it in this guy's eyes. And so then he has him go wash it out. You remember, uh, there's a couple other occasions, Mark seven thirty three. He healed the man who couldn't hear or speak by uh, spitting and putting his thumb on the tongue and his fingers in the ears. And then in uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 23, there was a healing of another blind man just by putting spit in his eyes. And in that occasion, it says, uh, what do you see? And the man said, I see people walking like trees. And Jesus touches him again and completes the miracle, and he sees as he should. So it could be one of those. It could be something else altogether. We don't know. But one thing I do want to encourage us with is let's not follow methods in this. That this isn't, uh, this isn't an ordinance of the church. Like on certain Sundays, we're going to have mud spitting anointings or anything like that. Um, and I think one of the reasons is that Jesus doesn't want us attached to methods. He wants us trusting in him, that he's the healer, and it's not a methodology. Remember, it didn't turn out good for the seven sons of Sceva when they tried to use a formula. They went in saying, Jesus, whom Paul preaches, if Jesus' name were a magic word. And the demon said, we know Jesus, we know Paul, we don't know you, and then beat him up and sent him out naked and bleeding. And if you know the historical context for the high priest's sons to go out naked, that was a massive, there's a massive stigma against that. So they were ashamed. An interesting study in the Bible is a connection between uh, uh, demonization and nakedness. There's a connection there that's really interesting. Um, so what he's not doing is creating a new ordinance. Verse 7 Jesus only says um, seven words to the blind man in these uh, in this first encounter, and uh, most of the talk in the rest of the passage is with other people. He says to him these seven words: "Go and uh, wash in the pool of Siloam." Now, if you know if he's in the temple precinct, and if you know what the old city looks like, it's a long, narrow thing. I had it on my map, but for some reason, it won't work here. Um, it's a long, narrow thing, and at the top is where the temple would be, up north, okay? And the way to get down would be to go through the crowds all the way through the old city and the Pool of Siloam's at the very bottom, okay? So he made a blind man walk with stuff in his eyes, fighting through the crowd to find the pool to wash. And I don't know what the significance of that is other than maybe it's an act of faith, are you gonna are you gonna trust me with this? And he did go wash and uh he received his sight. All right, so we have the healing now. And uh then we have this section of testimony in verses eight and following, and I'd like to take a look at that. His neighbors they saw he came home seen. He went home seen. Imagine imagine that. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and to beg? <laughs> Imagine just working in your garden or wherever you're at in your house and looking out and seeing the guy that used to be, used to be 
um, begging and blind just walk past like a normal guy, you would have done a double take. I think there's some humor in that. It makes me laugh to think about the, uh, it makes me a little bit giddy with joy to think about what that must have been like. So they, they said this, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? And I'd like you to notice these differences because this is the testimony regarding him. Seeing is not always believing. Okay, because some said, yes, he's the man. Verse 9. Verse 9 also said, no, he just looks like the man. He just looks like it, but it can't be him. Do you notice what they're doing? They're shifting a little bit away from the evidence. The evidence is that this is clearly the man, but no, we know that that man's blind. This man isn't blind. Instead of believing a miracle could have taken place, they go to the logical next step is that this just looks like him. He's got a doppelganger out there that looks like him. Verse 9, the guy says of himself, no, I'm the man. I'm that guy. He and he himself insisted, I am that man. Verse 10, how then were your eyes open, they asked. They wanted to get into a theological discussion regarding that. I'd like you to notice in verse 20, um, and this is beyond the scope of, of the seen man and his neighbors, but in verse 20, uh, the parents said, yes, this is our son. So these are, these are testimonies. They don't believe the man. He's just one witness. There are some random people that have given their uh, testimony that, yes, he's the man. But the Pharisees refuse to believe until the man's parents come. Why would that be significant? How many of them were there probably? Because it's plural, parents, not parent. There are two of them, right? And what's the law and witnesses in the Bible? Two or two or more, right? You gotta you gotta have witnesses, and so they're they're testifying. That's an oath that will stand up in trial, and so they finally have to believe, but they're not ready to believe in Jesus quite yet, and some of them apparently never would be. But verse uh, verse ten, how then were your eyes open? And he replied, the man that they called Jesus made some mud, and he put it in my eyes, and he told me to go wash in the pool of Siloam. So I went, and I washed, and then I could see. That's simple. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know. Then they brought the Pharisees. Uh, they brought the man to the Pharisees. So this is just like um, people that he knew, his neighbors. They're just asking him questions. And he's given testimony that Jesus healed me. And so these guys think it's a good idea. Bring him to the Pharisees. This has to part be in the design of God too, I think. So they brought him to the Pharisees. And uh, verse 14 says, Now on the day in which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. And of course, these guys have extended the Sabbath laws beyond the actual law itself, right? There's these fence post laws. They say, not only can you not do work, but here's the rigid uh, stipulations that we think constitutes work. So don't do any of these things. Any type of thing that could be perceived as work, they think, is a no-no. You know, even, <laughs> you know, even, uh, even though there were exceptions, like if a, a person's ox fell in the ditch, then they could pull it out on the Sabbath. That's work, but there are things that are urgent enough that they require action even on the Sabbath. 
And one of the things that would have been urgent enough is this man's born blind, but apparently they wanted to wait till Sunday or Monday or Tuesday, any day of the week, but Saturday for healing someone. So they put up these rigid uh, stipulations. Pharisees were the biggest political group during that time. And it was mostly that they were devoted to keeping the law to the T. And they would have come out of um, Babylon, the Babylonian uh, exile, with a new vigor for keeping law. And so they're the massive group. And then there were the Sadducees, which were the priestly class, the sons of Zadok. That's where Sadducee comes from. And then subsets of the Pharisees would have included like the Zealots. And uh, the Essenes were a separatist community. They said, none of you guys are have found the true way. And so they separated and went out. But the majority of people would have been Pharisees. They would have... Yeah, in fact, Pharisee doesn't necessarily imply that they were had some kind of leadership of any kind, except for the way John uses it. You could be a Pharisee and be a normal, everyday Jew and not have a place of authority. So it was, it was kind of like your denomination, like some are Baptists and Methodists and so on. Pharisees existed even as far as Tarsus, which is in Turkey, because Paul was a Pharisee. So... It's a good question. These guys must have some kind of authority. And so they're, they're in a place of leadership, though not all Pharisees would have been. <laughs> no. <laughs> Those are all good because of what we see in Scripture, but not all Pharisees were bad. I think Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he was a believer. In fact, it tells us later on that many Pharisees became Christians. I think a Pharisee would be a lot like, I don't know, an evangelical Christian who was really hardcore in the holiness area. Um, although Pharisees, many of them didn't, they weren't trusting in Jesus, but they their devotion to the Bible would have been a lot like ours, I think. From being the majority in the, in the Jewish uh, population. So it was like, Maybe the evangelicals in the 80s that had a huge political power. This would be something like that. All right. Let's uh, soldier on here and get as far as we can. All right. Where, where were we? Verse, yes, thank you. Verse 13. Actually, let's go to uh, verse 16. It says, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. So he can't be from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. They set up the rules. He's violated the rules. By that, they exclude him uh, from being from God. What does from God mean? Do you think? <laughs> well, they would think so. I think sent, that they feel that he's sent, he's endorsed by God. So what they're saying is, we don't think he's endorsed by God. We don't think he is who he says he is. We don't think he's the Messiah. We don't think he's the anointed one, uh, and so on. Before, Not before he started to come down for the feast. Yes, they had, because we already have encounters with him, I think, starting in chapter 7, 
and chapter 8, definitely, there's a mounting opposition, and John shows this. There's a mounting opposition against Jesus that's happening right now. And so all of this is playing into it, and it's going to culminate when he um, purges the temple the second time. When he does that, that's it. They're done. And they've set in motion to kill him at that point. But all of this is playing into that. What Jesus is trying to do is present a witness of who he is, but people won't hear it. And he's even demonstrating works, and he's not unkind. He wants Pharisees to come to believe in him. But many times they won't, and so he has to do things to prod them. And just like he did us, did did anybody here, before you became a Christian, you got mad when people would talk about Jesus? Nobody wants to admit it. But sometimes sometimes it makes you mad, doesn't it? Like if, if people were trying to win you the Lord and you weren't ready for it, you can get mad about that. And sometimes it's good for us to get mad because then we think about it. We argue, and we even argue at times with God. And sometimes we may still get mad and argue with God. And he, and when that happens, man, he, he wins. He wins the argument. He does. Um, so they said, this man's not from God. In other words, they thought Jesus wasn't sent by God. Um, many people found it hard to accept what Jesus did, but the testimony is unmistakable. Many people recognized him. Uh, this man who'd been healed, his parents' testimony, his own testimony, and still a lot of people found a way to disbelieve in Jesus. Um, it's kind of entertaining to see the theological and observational gymnastics that they use in order to jump around that conclusion. Jesus did this miracle, and he is the Messiah. And so they have a problem with it because of what the miracle would mean to them. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, um, then they have to submit to him. And Messiah kind of encapsulates all the anointed areas of ministry. You have prophet, priest, and king. They were all anointed. Messiah encapsulates all that. So if you think about that, he's the prophet who will speak on God's behalf, the best prophet who's ever lived. He's the priest, and he represents us to the Father better than anybody else, and he's king. And those three uh, demonstrate the way in which he's anointed. Uh, the Pharisees and the parents, they, they interview the parents, verse 22 and following. I'm going to skip through some of this, but they've been pressured to reject Jesus, and that pressure is mounting. And so the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders would put people out of the synagogue if uh, they confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. And you have to appreciate what that, what that means, uh, the difficulty of going against the whole community of God. Uh, you know, for, for me, if, if I have a view of things, and I realize everybody's on the other side of that, um, it doesn't necessarily mean a person's wrong, but you, at least... Give second thought to like, have I missed something here? You know what I mean? When if everybody's on one side, and so this is where um, people might have felt like, man, I'm going to have to leave my community of faith in order to follow Jesus. It wasn't as if you could just go down the street to another synagogue because they would tell the other synagogue, this guy's been cast out, and that synagogue would honor the same kind of following, and so. There was agreement among those leaders concerning this. Choosing Jesus then meant choosing him over against the convictions of some who knew the Bible best. Men of hardened conviction who at least acted certain that Jesus could not be the Messiah. And so choosing him 
meant choosing against the religious community you're part of, and in many ways, choosing Jesus looked like a choice between Jesus and God, because they would have felt as if they're having to abandon, in one sense, God on one hand in order to choose God on the other. And uh, this shows the perverse ingenuity of Satan's deception, is that how, somehow he can make following Jesus look like the evil choice. He might have stopped many potential believers by such a threat. Well, the parents choose to let him take responsibility. You see the Pharisees address the seen man. Was this your son? They said, yes. So they bring him back in, and they say this, give glory to God and tell the truth. Okay. Anybody else remember where uh, give glory to God was said? There's a famous Old Testament story about that. Do you remember when uh, the children of Israel marched around Jericho and they were told not to touch the dedicated things? Don't touch it. Don't take anything. Don't loot that city. That belongs to the Lord. And Achan took it and they buried it underneath the tent. And uh, they went to battle against little Ai and got defeated. And so Joshua's praying and God says, you've got somebody who's violated my command in your camp. And so they begin to find out as they narrowed down tribe into family and clan. And so they addressed Achan. The lot fell to Achan, and they said, give glory to God. Tell us what's happened. Give glory to God. That's the same words that are used here. And so these, uh, these religious leaders or these Pharisees are addressing uh, this man who's been healed, probably feeling that they've got this great big religious authority on their shoulders. Give glory to God. They're saying the same things that Joshua said. Tell us the truth. But in the same breath, they say, we know this man's a sinner. So they're not really open to the truth. They just want them to say, want him to say a certain thing. Uh, it's interesting here. They said that we know that he's a sinner. We know that he's not from God because he violates the Sabbath. Verse 29, um, if you look at that, we know that this, this man is not from God because he violates the Sabbath. And uh, yet in chapter 3, Nicodemus, he said, we know you're from God because of the, the miracles that you've done. Verse 32, this comes to our beginning question. Notice it says there, uh, this is the blind man's testimony. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know whether he comes, where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. Um, I want to point out something that we need to know here, that that may be true, but I want you to know that just because a miracle happens, that doesn't necessarily mean the miracle's from God. Okay, be careful with that, suggesting that anytime anybody does a miracle, then it must be that they're from God. That's, this is not the theology that's being endorsed here. But what he's saying is we know uh, he is from God. Uh, he listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of anybody opening the eyes of, the man, of a man born blind. Okay, so this is verse 32. No one's ever heard of this. We've got about five minutes left. Let me... Uh, deal with this as quick as we can. Has God, oh, has God ever opened eyes before? Here's the interesting thing. In the Old Testament, we also see this uh, in the New Testament. John 11.37, when Lazarus is sick, I think it's there. Uh, 
1137, Lazarus is sick. Somebody says, or has died. Somebody says, uh, he's healed blindness. Could he not have saved this man? Which suggests that healing blindness was considered one of the highest forms of miraculous work. Like, he's healed blindness up here. Could he not have spared this man from dying? Do you see that? He's healed blindness. In other words, he's showing, oh, he could do this way up here. Couldn't he have done this lesser thing? Save. It shows us the place that a healing of blindness miracle would have fit. We never see an instance of this in the Old Testament except one. One time in the Old Testament that I know of. And I I could be wrong on this. If you find something, let me know. But um, the only time we see this in the Old Testament is when Elisha is in the valley and the Arameans come out against him. And uh, he says to his the his servant, uh, more with us than are with them. And he prays, God open his eyes, and they see the chariots of the Lord all around. And then Elisha prays, and Eli- and God strikes the Aramean army with blindness. And then they lead them into the middle of the city, and God and Elisha prays, God will you open their eyes. And their eyes are open. So this is not an instance of somebody being born blind. This is an instance of somebody being struck blind out of God's work in order to prevent um, an army from conquering the armies of Israel. And then, of course, that sight ban, if you want to call it that, was lifted, and they were all able to see again. Okay? But other than that, we don't see this because I think this is something that God reserved for Messiah. You can see it in places like Isaiah 29, 18, 35, 5, 42, 7, uh, Matthew 11, 5. And you remember, and then John 11, uh, 10, 21. And you remember when um, John the Baptist asks, are you the one to come or should we expect another? One of the things Jesus mentions is tell John that the blind receives sight. That's telling it the Messiah has come. This is somebody greater than all the prophets of the Old Testament. Okay? He's testifying to who he is. Okay, if we had time, we could look those up. But those are some examples of that. And Isaiah prophesies that in that day, the, the blind will receive sight. Verse 34, the religious leaders follow the same reasoning as the disciples. When the man who's been healed, I'm going to call him the the seeing man now because he's not the blind man anymore, when they can't get him to reason correctly, then they say this, that you were born, you were steeped in sin from birth. In other words, the reason you were blind was because you were steeped in sin from birth. So they agree a little bit with the disciples on that, or at least their assumption. And uh, Jesus deals with, finally, the spiritual condition. I think this is really where all of this is going. The seen man and Jesus. Verse 35 through 39. Uh, Jesus catches up with him and he engages the man in conversation and invites him to believe. And the man says, uh, who is this one in whom I'm to believe? The man that you see standing before you is he, is the son of man. Will you believe in him? Yes, I will believe in him. And it says, I believe in you, Lord. And then it says he worshiped, but the the Greek word that's here is uh, proskuneo, which is he bowed down. He bowed down before Jesus and showed homage to him. Um, 
And then he says in verse 39, for judgment, I've come into the world. This is kind of interesting, and we can't take a long time for this, but uh, how do you reconcile this with John 3.17? John 3.16, God so loved the world. John 3.17, God sent not his son of the world to condemn the world, remember, but that the world through him might be saved. And it uses the same Greek word, krino, here, as it does in John 3.16, and John, or John 3.17. John 3.17 says he didn't come to condemn the world. Here it says the Son has come to judge the world. Same word. How do we reconcile those two things? Well, I think here uh, the point uh, is that he didn't come for judgment. He came uh, to redeem but by coming to redeem, judgment will happen. And even if you read John three seventeen, he didn't come to condemn the world. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already. So Jesus is the deciding factor. Uh, it's prophesied about him that he will be the cause of the rise and the fall of many in Israel. Just by his presence, people are going to make a choice. He's polarizing. You don't get to remain neutral with Jesus. Do you know what I mean? That he, when he comes into a room, calls for decision. Well, the blind man saw. And because of that, uh, he received sight. Jesus talks to the Pharisees and he says, uh, they said, are you saying that we're blind? And he says, if you were blind, he doesn't answer them the way that they think he would. But uh, if you were blind, then you wouldn't be guilty. But because you claim to see, your guilt remains. So Jesus here is making a statement about their willful blindness. Blindness that cries out for illumination will not be guilty of the sin of unbelief. Um, Having doubts is not the same thing necessarily as unbelief. Do you understand what I mean by that? When you have a doubt, you're, you're wavering between two things. But when you have unbelief, it's that you've heard and you're choosing not to obey. Okay, It's taking it to a new level. So he's talking about this spiritual blindness and this unbelief. And they claim to have all the knowledge, but they don't have knowledge of him. Proverbs 26, verse 12, do you see a person who is wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for them. And so his meaning is that though they have enough spiritual knowledge to be responsible, had they acted on their best knowledge, they would have welcomed him as the son of God, but they didn't act on their best knowledge. They claimed to have sight and acted like the blind, and therefore their sin is not taken away. It remains with them. So what's really at stake here is whether Jesus is the Messiah. Assumptions often stood in the way of understanding as they do for us. The way around assumption is to ask good questions and to search for the truth. The disciples assumed the man was born because of, uh, because of sin. He was born blind. They were wrong. The Pharisees assumed Jesus was not from God because he healed on the Sabbath. They were wrong. The Pharisees assumed that the seen man wasn't formally the blind man. They were wrong. The Pharisees assumed Jesus was a sinner. They were wrong. Okay, And then the Pharisees assumed that the man was blind also because of sin in verse 34, and they were wrong about that too. And I think the conclusion which should have, uh, should have been drawn was that Jesus was trustworthy because of what he'd done and who he was. But many chose to ignore the evidence and therefore remained in their sins and became blind. It's one thing to be physically blind. It's another thing to be spiritually blind. 
And we want to ask, God, help us to have light. Hey, thanks for the extra five minutes tonight. Let's stand. Let's ask the Lord's help. We can assume things ourselves. We can cage God in or try to with our own theology and not let him have room to be God. And and we miss out when we do that. We can make bad assumptions about what God's like. And anytime we start off with, I think this is what God is like, a lot of times we end up getting into folly. So, Father, we pray that you'd help us to have spiritual sight, to, Lord, be open to who you really are, not to be undiscerning, not to be careless with theology, but to understand that you're much bigger than uh, our ability to comprehend. You're bigger than our categories. And uh, we want to know the true you, and we want to have a heart that's surrendered and open to what you want to do for us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us not to be blind, but to have true knowledge, to have illumination, to see who you really are. And we thank you, Lord, for helping us pay attention to your word on this hot summer evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you're blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.